This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. This is lecture number 12, uh, and this lecture really marks uh, the second half of the class where we begin to apply a lot of the methods and uh, general understanding of infectious disease evolution to actually interpreting what's going on with infectious diseases as they spread through populations um, and also as they are growing within patients. Uh, so today, I'll be lecturing on one example, a really great example, a really interesting paper uh, by Tammy Lieberman, on, she's an MIT professor, but this work was done at Harvard Medical School. And um, uh, it is a great demonstration on um, proving that chronic infections, uh, the microbes within them do evolve uh, and can have, uh, their evolution can have important implications on therapies that you use against them. Okay, so that's a lot. We will go over stepwise what all of that meant. Okay, as always, we're starting out with checking the temperature on COVID-19, and today I want to talk about SARS-CoV-2 evolution in the news. So I'm going to actually talk about two different subjects. These are subjects that uh, students in the class, uh, my relatives, my friends, uh, and also random people from the internet have emailed me about. Uh, so I want to walk through these two subjects. They're a little bit controversial, so I'm going to try to be careful um, and give you, but in the end, you know, give you the, the, my, my take on it and um, help you understand why these two subjects are controversial. So there is a video that's spreading around the internet uh, called Plandemic. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, I haven't actually seen the video. I've read articles about it um, and people have asked me about it. It has been taken down from YouTube again and again, um, and that is because it has uh, information that's just false in it. Uh, so a lot of the video, it revolves around the scientist here um, who was shown, uh, who was a part of a paper that had to be retracted uh, from the journal Science uh, and was accused of stealing stuff from the lab that she worked in uh, and discredited uh, for other reasons as well. And so I guess this video, goes into a lot of different details about the epidemic and, and if you, um, or the pandemic that we're going through right now. And if you look at the name, pandemic implies that, you know, there's a larger conspiracy behind uh, this pandemic that maybe it's not actually natural uh, and that some of the leading health experts might even be profiting from it. Uh, this is not true. Uh, they go into Fauci uh, and that doctor uh, is, has done a great job in the past uh, with his work on HIV and stopping that epidemic. Um, and he is now working very hard uh, to help us through this current epidemic or, or pandemic, I mean. So uh, the video has been discredited for many, many reasons. And so if you're seeing it and you're wondering what to believe, uh, do not believe this video. Uh, just as a kind of Fun little fact. Um, so I was reading this article uh, from NPR on this pandemic video and just sort of walking through the facts in the video. So 
Certainly this article points out where uh, the video does get the facts right, um, but where it also gets many of the facts wrong. Uh, and uh, I was pleased to see that they actually cited uh, this study here uh, is from my PhD. Uh, this was my research on viruses that I performed as, in a, as a PhD student uh, that received a bunch of press. And in this article, they actually showed, they actually uh, used this research as a, as a way to push back on how viruses can adapt very rapidly. And that while some features of this virus may seem unnatural, um, there's some mutations in there that we've talked about, like insertions and deletions that are relatively rare. Uh, however, um, we have shown with lab experiments that viruses can evolve these types of mutations. Uh, and when we've looked out into nature, uh, these types of mutations are actually common. And so they're actually not as rare as one would think. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, kind of feel great that uh, our research was was used to push back on, on these fictions. So yeah, so that's the pandemic video. Not too much real science behind that. Uh, and a, a shameless plug of, of my research and, and being cited by NPR. So let's, let's get into a little meteor debate that's going on right now. And so uh, there was uh, an article that came out in a, a non-peer-reviewed journal so we've talked about these before. These are preprints. What this is is that scientists have done research and they're eager to get the research out and published. And so they submit them to these archives online um, and that allows scientists to read uh, research faster. Um, but the, the trade-off with this is that the articles have not been peer reviewed. And so you can imagine that um, maybe there's a flaw in some of these studies and they wouldn't actually get through peer review. And so people have access to research that might be flawed uh, and may overinterpret that research. Whereas a, uh, an article that went through the peer review process, um, maybe the reviewers would uh, kill the paper because it has uh, uh, some kind of analysis flaw. Or maybe the, the reviewers would say, you know, you have to tone this down. Um, this isn't supported by the data and so forth. Uh, so there was this, this, uh, this article that came out, and uh, it suggested that SARS-CoV-2 was evolving and that there was a particular mutation that had given it the ability to uh, transmit faster than other strains of SARS-CoV-2, and that this, uh, the strains that had this mutation were now becoming more and more abundant, and the suggestion or the implications are that perhaps the virus was becoming even harder to combat. And so there are headlines like this from LA Times, scientists say uh, now dominant strain of the coronavirus could be more contagious than original. Um, and then this was further picked up um, by other news outlets where they uh, you know, basically were saying that there is a really deadly strain and that we all had to be worried about this. Um, and uh, so there was then a pushback by the New York Times and, and this article written by Carl Zimmer asking the question, you know, is, is there enough evidence yet to actually say that there's a new, more deadly strain of the coronavirus? Uh, and the conclusion here is not likely, scientists say. Um, in, the, in this uh, article, uh, 
the conclusion is actually not as strong as maybe the title would suggest. Um, the conclusion is just that none of the scientists interviewed uh, would say that this mutation, so that's the D614G mutation, so that's a change in the amino acid D to a G at this position 614. And um, none of the scientists would say that it certainly is not adaptive and it certainly doesn't have this effect, um, but that more research needed to be done. So I was, um, I had actually just, I had not read the paper and I had just seen this um, back and forth and this controversy happening online um, and was reading some of the news articles about it. Uh, and uh, some of my family had seen the headlines and were very concerned. Um, and so I actually dug into the paper uh, and I was, I was prepared to just trash this paper and this research um, and uh, to say that they're being, you know, uh, not very, uh, not, not res very responsible with publishing this data so early uh, and because of the implications of, on, on the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but I would have to say that after I read the paper, I'm, I'm not on the, the side of any particular argument with respect to this mutation, except the data is really fascinating in the paper. Um, there are some patterns that I think definitely need to be looked into a lot closer. Okay, so let me show you the data for a little bit, uh, and then we'll get back to the, the main conclusions and how I feel about it. So my bias going into this is that I thought that this research was going to be poor, um, but after reading the paper, it's very interesting. Um, certainly it needs to be reviewed and go through the normal process, uh, but I think that there's some interesting uh, observations there. Okay, so what did they observe? And this is just a few of the figures from the paper. Um, and so definitely go into the, the real paper if you are interested in it. Um, but so this is a table describing the frequency of G614. And so remember, it started out as a D and it changed to a G at this position. And so um, what they're looking at are whole genome sequences of um, of SARS-CoV-2 taken at different time points. And actually they're just focusing in on this one mutation in one gene. The gene is that spike protein, the one that's important for uh, recognizing the, and binding, re recognizing uh, human cells and binding to the ACE2 receptor. And so um, what we see is that this is the, you know, this is the original state of the amino acid Here's the mutant version. And um, as we look at the, the strains over time, we see that there's a higher and higher frequency of this mutant strain. And so, you know, you, we've gone over in the class, that's the, that's the, that is a signature of natural selection. You know, certainly neutral genetic drift uh, can randomly uh, promote a mutation for just stochastic reasons and can drive it to a higher frequency. Uh, but this is a really rapid increase. Uh, and remember, these, these population sizes are huge for this virus. So I don't know if you can really explain this just by neutral genetic drift. We'll get into the alternative hypotheses in a second. But uh, the main hypothesis um, being promoted in this paper and being tested in this paper is the idea that this is an adaptive mutation that leads to increased spread, increased transmissibility of this virus. And so 
Um, what this figure is showing you is just how in these different populations of the virus, of the different human populations, um, where we're tracking SARS-CoV-2 and where we have access to genome sequences, uh, we see that the strain that has this mutation in it is actually increasing in frequency. And it's not just increasing in frequency randomly in one population, it seems to be increasing in frequency in all of the populations that it was observed in. And so that is a strong sign of natural selection. And the last thing is, and this is really the, the thing that pushes me towards the side that this data seems to suggest that this is a mutation that is adaptive and could enhance the, the speed of the spread or transmission of the virus, is that um, within one of these populations, they had information about patients with the strain that had the original uh, wild type D and the mutant G at this position. Um, and so they, they looked at a number of different um, bit, in, bits of information and data related to this virus and, and the patients and, and how well they were doing and, and so forth. And the one thing that came out that was statistically significantly different um, between the, the patients that had the wild type D versus the mutant G is that the number of PCR cycles required to detect the virus um, in, their, in their samples was significantly lower in the G614. And so we haven't gone through exactly how this, um, how the test for SARS-CoV-2 works. This is the PCR-based test, obviously. Um, this is not the antibody test, but this is the direct test of whether or not you have viral RNA um, in, in your sample, so in spit or, or from, from your nose uh, and so forth. And what they found is that you needed fewer fewer cycles of this PCR reaction in order to detect the, the virus if it had the mutation. What fewer cycles means is that there's actually more virus uh, RNA in the sample. So there's more viral particles in the sample. And what this suggests is that the production of virus in patients that had this mutation was actually much higher um, than the production of virus um, when the patients did, had the virus that did not have the mutation. And so this is a real phenotypic effect. Um, it seems significant, although I haven't you know, looked at the data myself and I haven't uh, inspected whether or not this was, these samples were properly um, randomized and, and so forth. That's something that the reviewers will have to do. Um, but that's, that's really strong evidence. And so I guess I wanna say is that you know, the, the authors of the article uh, interpret all of this data as suggesting that this is a beneficial mutation that is actually increasing the transmissibility of the virus. Uh, and there's, but there are alternative explanations. Um, and one is that this mutation might be hitchhiking. We haven't talked about this concept yet, uh, but hitchhiking means that you're a mutation and you're in a genome where there's another beneficial mutation in the genome. And that beneficial mutation is uh, driving the increase in frequency of that strain of the virus. And so the other mutations in the, in the genome uh, hitchhike with it and get carried along 
with it. So this could be a hitchhiker. Uh, it could also be just a neutral pattern that it was sort of the right mutation at the right time and it's randomly increasing in frequency as the strain spread around the globe. And that's still a possibility. But my one, my one issue with these alternative explanations is that neither of these explanations can explain this pattern here. And so that pattern does, to me, suggest that it's increasing transmissibility and that it's a beneficial mutation. And note, I, I said suggest. Um, we don't know this for sure yet. Um, but that is, I don't know, if, you're, if you have sort of a scale and you're thinking about evidence on both sides, that's certainly tipping the scale towards this idea that this is a beneficial mutation. And I add to it that it might be increasing the transmissibility of the virus um, because if you're producing more viral particles you know, from each individual patient, uh, then those particles, that, that, that increased number, uh, increases the potential for the virus to spread from one patient to the next. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of um, gaps in our understanding of how this mutation actually works. Um, and if it is adaptive, there's a lot more experiments that have to be done. Um, but I do think that this, this, is, um, this paper is getting ragged on a lot, but I actually think that it, it, it doesn't deserve quite the level of criticism that it's had. So bottom line, there is suggestive evidence that SARS-CoV-2 may be evolving to become more transmissible. However, this paper needs to be peer reviewed and controlled experiments should be conducted. They, have, they haven't done controlled experiments in the lab yet. And that's really sort of the level of evidence that you want. Um, you know, certainly you can look at the patterns that they looked at and draw conclusions, but because anything you, you sort of say about SARS-CoV-2 is going to be disseminated in the news uh, and interpreted by people that have not read the paper, uh, I think it is important to be more conservative uh, and to wait until you have those experiments uh, before you make any, any kind of definitive claim. Um, so there is not enough evidence yet uh, for some of the alarming headlines that people have seen about this. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about an example of um, not viruses, but a bacteria uh, and a mini epidemic in Boston and um, how the researchers were able to actually show that this during the epidemic and during infections of patients the bacteria was actually adaptively evolving um, and in ways that were deleterious to the, the patients that it was infecting and so I will this lecture dovetails really nicely with the taking the temperature this time in that I will show you the sort of level of evidence that you would likely want uh, before making too strong of a claim um, about whether or not a mutation is in fact adaptive. Okay, this is lecture numbers, number 12, um, uh, adaptations within patients and during an epidemic. And for this lecture, we're just gonna focus on one study. So, I wanna sort of step back and think about whether or not pathogens, whether or not we expect pathogens um, or microbes that are inhabiting our bodies uh, to be evolving. And are these microbes evolving and adapting to us? And are those adaptations necessarily good or bad for us? Um, and so there's a lot of research lately on microbiomes. We now know that you know, our bodies are loaded with microbes on our skin, in our guts, 
um, and that this is a part of you know, being, being uh, a multicellular organism, is that you have these associations with single-celled organisms. And um, so if we have all these microbes inhabiting us, are these microbes even adapting to us? And so let's, let's sort of think about, um, think about the numbers. And so uh, this, this figure here um, is just showing how uh, different regions of your body uh, have associations with different types of bacteria. So let's answer this question. Do we have to worry about evolution of the micro microbes that inhabit our bodies? There are roughly 10 to the 14 bacterial cells inhabiting your microbiome. They replicate on average once an hour and have a per genome mutation rate of 0 0.00001. How many new mutations do we expect every hour? So just every hour. And we expect a billion new mutations every hour. So, you know, 24 hours in a day, lots of hours in a week, lots and lots and lots of mutations are happening all the time in these microbes. So this is a huge evolutionary potential. You know, all of this genetic variation is, um, is accumulating de novo uh, as, the, as the microbe is associating with us. And of course, the way that you get this number is just the number of cells, they divide once in an hour, so that's um, 10 to the 14 new cells that could accumulate errors. And here, here is the error rate um, per genome, so per cell, uh, so you just take this number times that number and you get 1 billion. So um, most of these mutations uh, aren't going to matter for the adaptation of the, the bacteria. Um, many of them will, will be neutral. A lot of them will be deleterious. Um, and the deleterious ones will just sort of get weeded out of the population. Um, and so most of them will have very little impact on shaping the evolution of that, those microbial populations in, in the microbiome. However, there will be some subset that are, that are adaptive. Um, and the question about these, and these are the ones that are going to really shape the evolution of the bacteria. And so the question is, are these mutations, you know, can they be deleterious for us, the host? Can they cause us problems? And the fact is, is that maybe a lot of these adaptive mutations don't have any influence on our health. Um, maybe some of them actually could benefit us in that these adaptations help the bacteria metabolize some compound that then um, is good for us to have that, that metabolite removed from from our guts or, or so forth. You could imagine lots of ways that this would be good, but there's also ways that this adaptation is bad. Uh, and so one of the clearest examples of this adaptation being bad is that often um, if there's bacteria that in infect your lungs, so if you have a lung infection, um, they, can, they will evolve to produce biofilms. And these biofilms will actually just gunk up your lungs and cause a lot of problems for you. These are adaptive for the bacteria because it helps defend the bacteria from uh, your immune system and it helps just provide a way for the bacteria to grow in these features in the lung uh, and stay in them and not get sort of coughed out. 
Uh, so they are certainly adaptive mutations and they do have uh, negative effects on human health. So today I want to go into this example, uh, and this is this paper by Tammy Lieberman. Uh, this is a picture of Tammy. She's now a professor at MIT, if you're interested in this work. Uh, she's continued similar stuff, uh, now focusing on the skin microbiome. Uh, but she was studying uh, cystic fibrosis patients. Uh, we'll go into what that is, but that's a genetic disorder um, where people tend to have these chronic lung infections. So bacteria growing in their lungs and causing lots and lots of problems for them. Um, and there was a mini epidemic of um, a pathogen that spread um, in Boston. And we are going to stepwise walk through this paper and the evidence that these bacteria were actually adapting to the, the patients that they're infecting. Okay. So the bacteria is called Burkholderia delosa. It's a member of the Burkholderia capaceae complex, BCC. BCC are typically harmless. They're found throughout the environment. However, Burkholderia delosa is a strain that's evolved to exploit patients with cystic fibrosis. So Dr. Lieberman's paper uses genome sequencing to show how this strain adapted to patients during a small epidemic in the 1990s in Boston, 39 total people were infected. So cystic fibrosis is a rare genetic disorder. Um, there's about 200,000 new cases per year. And um, what it is, is uh, there's a lot of problems associated with cystic fibrosis. The one that we think about most often is that your lungs create this mucus um, that ends up blocking airways. And this mucus also provides this really rich nutrient environment for bacteria to grow. And so bacteria tend to inhabit the lungs. Um, normally people that are healthy don't have bacteria living in their lungs. Uh, but this genetic disorder provides the right habitat for these bacteria to um, live and survive uh, and grow and reproduce in the lungs. And this is an extreme problem for, for people that have this, this disorder. So they have these chronic lung infections. What that means is that the bacteria live in their lungs for uh, many, many years. So you know, hundreds and thousands of generations. And so there's a lot of potential for these bacteria to actually begin to adapt uh, to their hosts. Most of the treatments for cystic fibrosis are designed in order to reduce the number of bacteria in the lungs. So these patients often have, take lots and lots of different antibiotics. They cycle through antibiotics and uh, bacterial resistance to those antibiotics is known to be very common uh, in these patients. So for this study, they sampled 14 different patients over 16 years. So these are, these are chronic infections that are very difficult to cure. They have 112 actual bacterial samples that they isolated and sequenced. Um, they isolated mostly from the lungs, but also from the blood. So one of the hypotheses we're gonna to test today is um, where did the bacteria in the blood come from? The current thinking is that um, the bacteria that inhabit lung are very different than the ones that inhabit blood. And so that's a separate infection that happens in the blood. Um, but an alternative hypothesis is that uh, perhaps the, the blood ones 
our descendants from the lungs and just adapt to this new environment, the blood environment. Okay. So let's go over the actual dynamics of the epidemic. Um, and so this is, we have, you know, really good records of this. Uh, CF patients are, um, have to receive a lot of medical attention uh, to deal with the, their genetic disorder and to deal with these infections. And so there's just really great information on, you know, who had this strain when um, people were sampling sputum. That's, um, you know, phlegm basically. Uh, from the lungs that people hack up and they isolate bacteria from to identify what strains are infecting the CF patients at any given time. Uh, and so this is that, that's part of the reason that the small scale of the, the epidemic um, and the, the really great information and the great sampling effort that was underway uh, during this mini epidemic, those are why I think that this, this is a great example to teach people about you know, how to actually detect natural selection and adaptation during uh, these epidemics, um, certainly all of these principles can scale up to understanding SARS-CoV-2, but obviously there's just so much SARS-CoV-2 everywhere that it becomes very difficult to understand. Uh, and, and so it's not something that I want to start out immediately teaching about. I think this is a nice um, sort of um, microcosm of what's happening in the, in the much larger SARS uh, pandemic. Okay, so what you need to get acquainted with here is we just have um, on the x-axis, this is time, uh, and this is number of subjects in infected, but what, what really translates to the rest of the lecture is that we've identified the patients as A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so this, this, um, these patients, of course, we don't know their names. Their identities have been uh, secured. Um, and so we, we just call them by these letters, and this will sort of carry out throughout the rest of the lecture. Um, there are filled symbols and uh, open symbols. Um, the filled ones are called the cohorts. These are the people that we actually got samples from. So there are people in this epidemic that we don't have uh, samples from. So of the 34 patients who uh, continued care at the Boston Hospital, Boston Hospital, only three eventually cleared the infection. Some of the patients still colonized remain asymptomatic, while others develop sepatia uh, syndrome. So some of them uh, just had the strain, and then other ones had the strain and had terrible, terrible disease caused by the strain. At the time of the research was submitted for publication, nine patients had received lung transplants, 17 patients had died, all but one from this syndrome. So this is a very serious thing. Uh, this, was, this was really traumatic for the CF um, patients in the Boston area. Now, this graph here has the same x-axis, but now it has a different y-axis. It's not the number of patients. It's saying that this is patient A, this is patient B, this is patient C. So this is not a continuous variable on the y-axis. This is just showing you lining up these different patients and um, what these symbols are showing you are when that patient, um, when samples were taken from that patient's airways, from their bloodstream, um, or if they, um, some other sources of the uh, DeLosa. 
So I think that makes sense. So we can see that, you know, we're not just sampling the patient once, we're, we're sampling it over many, them over many years. And so that gives us an opportunity to actually observe evolution of the bacteria over many years within a patient, within, during an, an infection. Um, the first result that we can see is since we have time series data, just like we have time series for SARS-CoV-2, um, we can ask, you know, are, are the strains accumulating mutations in a very repeatable way at a very precise rate? Uh, and so this is the molecular clock. And um, I should say that where we're getting these mutations is that we're sequencing whole genomes of the delosa, and we're just looking across the whole genome within genes, non-synonymous changes, synonymous changes, regulatory changes in, in, in the genes. And so um, it's not necessarily true that they would accumulate mutations in a clock-like manner. Um, and so the first thing you want to test is that if you're trying to trace when this uh, pandemic or the, when this epidemic started and when it spread to different patients, then we want to establish a molecular clock. Um, and so what we find here is that there is a really nice, strong relationship between the number of mutations a bacteria has and um, how long it's been um, a part of this epidemic, how long it's been in patients, how long it's been spreading. Um, and so we find that this is 2.1 SNPs per year. So this brings up another point that I want to get cleared up right now. Um, there are a lot of different genetic changes in these, these libraries. Uh, Tammy just focused on the single nucleotide polymorphism. So this is where a single DNA base changes to another DNA base. Uh, there are insertions and deletions in there that might be contributing in significant ways to the evolution, but the analyses are much more straightforward when you focus on SNPs, and she learned a lot from just focusing on these SNPs, so certainly justified. Okay, so there's a molecular clock. We can use then the phylogeny and the evolutionary relationships between these different delosa strains to date when certain events happened. So here is um, the, the real meat of Tammy's analysis. This is the phylogeny for all of these different strains, 100 some different strains of Delosa that were isolated in full genome sequence. And this begins to sort of create the pattern of how this epidemic happened and what's happening within each patient. Okay, so let me just walk through what's going on here. Uh, so first off, this is a, um, a type of phylogeny that uh, I think looks really great and the OTUs are, are spread out nicely, uh, but it can be a little bit difficult to read. Um, and so this is your outgroup right here. Uh, and then these are all the derived strains that happened in the epidemic. So these are all the OTUs out here. Uh, and so this is the branching pattern um, that uh, establishes the evolutionary relationships uh, between all of these OTUs. And um, what these circles are, are circles that tell you when, um, or the, is, a, is a hypothesis for um, which patient got, um, got which strain. 
And so this is A, patient A was the first one to develop the infection. And then when we, when we reconstruct the phylogeny, we don't put that information into the phylogeny, but the phylogeny tells us that, yeah, the bacteria that, the bacteria that are most like the outgroup um, were isolated from A. And so A is, uh, that patient is, is, you know, patient zero, uh, patient A here, that then um, uh, the infection uh, grew in them and, and spread to other patients. Uh, and so you can see throughout the phylogeny, there's all these, um, um, there's all of these circles. These are indicating uh, different patients and roughly when um, we predict, given the phylogeny, uh, that the patient got the disease. Uh, so this cluster here is basically, um, there was so much spread of delosa at this point in the evolution of the, um, of the bacteria that we are unsure which of these patients got it first. And so there's just some ambiguity here. Um, but okay, that's, a, that's sort of a fine detail. Let's just sort of be more systematic and, and walk through what's going on in this phylogeny. So let me just make sure that I'm, I'm going over everything in my notes. So tips are individual isolates. Colors reflect the patient. So patient A is gray. Um, patient, uh, you know, I is this color. Patient H is, is pink and so forth. So um, what you can see is that the, the bacteria are infecting patients and then you get um, lots of evolution within the patients. Okay, so I just wanna sort of zoom in on a couple different features to walk you through this. I've already mentioned some of them. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I just wanna say that this is this X37. So X37, that's the OTU's name. Um, that's a delosa that is, a, is a, I think it's a lab strain of delosa. And so it was not a part of this pandemic. And so they know that this is the outgroup to, to all of the strains that caused this pandemic. So that was their outside information um, that this was isolated before the pandemic and is distinct from all the rest of the strains. And that's why it offers a really good outgroup to all of, this, um, all of these strains. And so, so just zooming in more, we can see that, um, that A had this strain um, uh, for actually a very long time. And so one, one feature of this phylogeny is that the branch lengths are directly related to how many mutations accumulate on those branches. And we know that the number of mutations is also related to time. And so the branch lengths actually indicate uh, time. And so we can see that um, you know, this, this bacteria spent a long time in patient A before it began to spread to other patients, suggesting that it might have evolved in patient A in ways that helped it spread to the other patients. Um, there's this period of rapid transmission um, where patient A, um, there's a whole cluster of different people that um, received the, the bacteria from patient A. So it's these four, but also, and then all of these are, are rapidly, all these other patients are rapidly, rapidly getting the, the disease as well. And I guess what I want to point out is 
that the, the general pattern that you can take from this phylogeny is that um, once a patient gets an infection, uh, then the bacteria that persist for years in the lungs are direct descendants of that initial uh, infection. So I'm just zooming in on patient J, uh, just because it's, it's easy to see where patient J is in respect to the, the phylogeny. Um, but uh, what, this, what this phylogeny is showing is that what we've sampled are bacteria from this point, this point, this point, that point, that point, so forth. So that's all of these different strains here. Um, and when we reconstruct the phylogeny, all of these bacteria that were isolated at different time points uh, from patient J and different sources from patient J, uh, we find that they form a monophyletic group. Um, and what that indicates to us is that patient J got infected by a bacteria many, many years ago, and then those bacteria established themselves in the lung, and um, then all of the descendants from that disease, or all of the modern strains of that disease, are descendants from that early strain that got into the lung. Uh, so this is, you know, we, we harp, I harped on um, being able to look at monophyletic groups and understand what they mean, uh, part of the reason is so that we can look at this phylogeny and, and interpret, you know, what this, this clustering of all the J's in a single clade within this phylogeny, what that actually means. That means that this person got a single strain that infected it, established itself in the lung, and maybe even blocked out other strains from invading the lung. So now I want to walk through sort of how we can read this phylogeny in order to date, when did Jay actually get this infection? So, you know, a lot of times people remain asymptomatic and we're not sure if they have the actual pathogen. Um, but if you have sampling, so all of these modern strains of, of Delosa isolated from patient J, you can then, um, using this molecular clock and using this phylogeny, go back in time and establish exactly when this patient got the pathogen. And then that helps us be able to reconstruct um, the spread of the pathogen from one patient to another patient. Uh, and so I want you to uh, think about how to answer this question. I haven't really given you too much information about this, and so you might be kind of in the dark here. But just think about how you'd answer it and the key is uh, using this, this guide right here. Okay, so what's going on here is that this is telling us, um, this is giving us the length of branches and how those length of branches correspond to number of mutations or SNPs that are occurring along those branches. And so this, this is where the phylogeny becomes a little bit difficult to read because this length here, so for 25 SNPs, is equivalent to this length obviously right here in the phylogeny. But as you sort of move out in the circle, um, these, these lengths are this, the, the radius. So genetic distance is being described as the, the total distance from the center of the circle out to the edges of the circle. That's those, the, the, that, um, that radius is what is giving you that distance. 
And so in order to, to be able to calculate, you know, how long ago did this infection uh, happen, um, what I need to do is say I know exactly when I isolated J148 um, and I have this phylogeny. And so what I want to do is I want to calculate, you know, what's the total distance from this OTU back to um, it's uh, when, the, when the common ancestor is estimated to have occurred. And so that is going back to this point. But, you know, so it's on, it, I think it's easier to see that distance if you start from the common ancestor of all of the J um, strains and you just take the, the line from J out to the edge of the circle. And so that's the, that's the, the, the distance that we're measuring. That's, that is the number of mutations that get you all the way out to the edge. This J is on the outer edge. It's accumulated a lot of mutations. Um, and so then the next step is, is to take that distance that you just measured and to compare it along this, um, this index here. And so this index suggests that, um, you know, this is about 17 mutations that have occurred from this point all the way out to the edge here. And so there's 17 SNPs, but that just tells you sort of time, you know, in, in, in terms of evolution, but we want to know time in terms of, you know, the actual years, when exactly do we expect that this patient J got this, got this pathogen. And so we take the number of SNPs and we divide by the slope of this line, that's SNPs per year. So 2.1 SNPs per year. And basically what this does is uh, you get rid of the SNPs, they factor out, uh, per year turns into just years. Um, and so you get uh, approximately eight years has gone by uh, since this strain was uh, isolated and when that patient initially got the ancestral strain that led to um, all of these other strains here. So um, we focused on just a, a single strain and estimating when this happened. Uh, certainly you could, you could use other strain information as well uh, to figure out um, when, when this happened and you can sort of combine that information together. Uh, typically in this class, when I'm not gonna have you estimate you know, all of the different divergence times uh, back from all of the different OTUs. Um, but if you're actually thinking about how people would, would get, a, get a sort of better estimate, then they would, they would use multiple different OTUs and when those OTUs were isolated and then make the same calculation going back to um, the common ancestor and then take the average of those values. Okay. So one of the things that is really abundantly clear in this phylogeny is that if you compare the branch lengths uh, that occur between different patients and you compare the branch lengths that occur within a patient, um, so that's branch lengths are the amount of evolution that's happening. Uh, you can see again and again that most of the evolution is happening within patients and not between patients. Uh, and so as this thing is spreading, there's very little evolution happening. And then once it gets into a patient, it begins to take hold and it begins to adapt to that individual patient. You know, this is easy to understand why this pattern exists. You know, the bacteria, maybe it can grow a little bit in nature, 
Um, certainly relatives of Delosa um, are environmental bacteria, but this bacteria does really, really well once it's in that lung environment with all of those nutrients. And so there's a lot more replication happening within that lung environment. And so there's a lot more potential for evolution in that, in that environment. Now that we have this phylogeny, we can actually reconstruct the pathway in which these, the pathogen spread from one person to another person. Before we go into these details down here, let's sort of walk through how we translate this phylogeny here into this uh, transmission pathway. And so um, basically all you do is you sort of walk through the phylogeny, you, you've established these evolutionary relationships just based on DNA sequences, then you've overlaid on top of the, those sequences which patient the sequence, the, the bacteria were isolated from, and that gives you this really interesting pattern of different patients having these different monophyletic groups of the bacteria. Uh, and so you can just sort of walk through the, the uh, phylogeny, and that actually, the branches of the phylogeny establish a pathway. It's pretty cool. Uh, and so we're going to start with A. We know that this is patient A. They're patient zero. And uh, as we go through, we, we already talked about how this sp spreads to lots of different people simultaneously. Um, and so we don't have resolution for how, the, how this cluster um, passed on the, the pathogen. And that yields all of these different groups. And then from this cluster, uh, we get spread to I and to H and to L and so forth. And so really just sort of walking through the, the phylogeny, it's actually giving us this, this, these arrows here. Um, and so uh, we know for pretty well that A spread it directly to M, that there is a sort of cluster of patients that were infected. And then from that cluster, we get G, uh, we get a spread to H. There's some uncertainty with how I got it and how D got it. Um, and, uh, but then from H, we know that there's a long-term infection of H um, and that it then spread to these, these other patients as well. Uh, so the, the group in H is actually not a monophyletic group um, because it has these other uh, groups embedded within it. And you can see here that, so that, that establishes the transmission pathway, uh, but you can see here that we have this H that has a common ancestor between this group over here and this group of bacteria here, um, and then there's these monophyletic groups of L, J, and N um, that are all different patients being infected. And so I think it's pretty cool that you can actually um, establish the, the pathway of infection uh, just by walking through the phylogeny. So um, remember that uh, not every patient in this epidemic was sampled for Delosa, and so there is missing information, and so some of these connections might not be direct. Um, it might go from A to another patient to M, um, but certainly this gives us the overall pattern and how it spread to different people, roughly. What this kind of information um, gives us is a way to build hypotheses about how transmission might have happened. And so, for instance, you know, where, did these, these patients overlap with A at some point? Um, often there are, there are these groups of CF 
uh, patients that meet together to deal with you know the the unique problems of being a CF patient on how how people they share how they manage it uh, and just probably complain with each other and enjoy each other's company um, but you know there's some worry that if you're not careful during those meetings um, perhaps uh, you could get this sort of super spreading event of an epidemic strain of bacteria. Um, or maybe there's a hospital that they all shared and that hospital isn't, um, isn't using proper uh, sanitation procedures to keep people from spreading uh, bacteria between one another. Uh, so yeah, so this, this pattern can, can uh, lead us to generate some interesting hypotheses and ask questions about how, how the disease spread. So in the next lecture, we are going to actually um, uh, use techniques to track um, how diseases spread through hospitals um, using the evolution of the disease and the genomics similar to what's happening here. So we will go into that a little bit more. Okay, and like I said, um, there is this hypothesis about where blood infections come from. And so I think doctors in general uh, realize that the blood environment's very different than the lung environment. And so often it was hypothesized that these are completely separate infections, not related to each other. Um, whereas the, the second hypothesis is, well, you know, we know that um, organisms are adaptable and perhaps um, these bacteria that are in the lungs can change in ways that allow them to spread to the blood. Um, and so we're gonna just look at the phylogeny and test this hypothesis, test these two different hypotheses. One, that the bacteria in the, in the lungs are separate from the bacteria in the blood, completely separate infections, and one is that they migrate from the lung to the blood and establish an infection in, this, this, um, in the blood. And so using the phylogenies again, we can ask, are the strains in the blood most closely related to the strains in the lung within a given patient? That would suggest a direction from the lungs to the blood. Um, or are all the blood strains most closely related to each other despite the fact that they're in different patients? That would suggest that there's a specially adapted blood strain that is spreading and causing separate infections. And so when we look at the phylogeny, there are three examples where they have samples uh, from the lung and also from the bloodstream. And what they find is that the strains within the blood are always most closely related to the strains in the lung within the patient and that they're not related to the um, other bloodstream strains from different patients. So this answers this longstanding question of where, where these infections come from. They come from the infection in the lung spreading to the, to the blood. So that's, that's a, a longstanding medical hypothesis that uh, wasn't answered until we had this genomic data, we reconstructed the evolutionary relationships, and then could finally test it. So it's an example of application of evolutionary principles to testing uh, hypotheses about where infections actually come from. So now I want to get into actually detecting whether or not these strains are adapting to the, the patients. Um, and so that's, the, that's sort of the big question that we've been after the whole time. Okay, so they take, this, they take a, a, a multifaceted approach. Some of the, the analyses will be familiar to you, some of them won't. 
And the first one is one that we haven't really talked about yet, um, but is one that you should understand given what we know about how the evolutionary process works. And so the first analysis that they did is, is a genome-wide analysis. And they wanted to know if the mutations in the genome were randomly scattered throughout the genomes or if there are non-random patterns um, indicative of parallel evolution and natural selection. So this is just my cartoon, and it's showing four separate delosa genomes. Uh, bacterial genomes are circles, if you remember. And um, it's showing that you know, there's these mutations in different genomes, and they're just sort of randomly scattered throughout the genome. Um, whereas a pattern of natural, and that, that would be due to just sort of random mutation and random genetic drift. Um, there's no sort of sense for why the mutations are anywhere. They're just randomly scattered. Um, however, certainly mutations are random throughout the genome, but you can begin to have non-random patterns if natural selection is filtering out some of those random mutations and promoting them and removing other random mutations away from the population, then you start to establish this non-random pattern in genomes where certain genes are going to be hit more often with mutations than other genes. And that non-random pattern is uh, caused by natural selection. So for instance, here, we'd have an enrichment of mutations that we observed in gene A and gene B, and that would suggest that those genes were under positive natural selection, that those mutations are in fact adaptive. So before we dive into you know, what genes are being hit many times, we wanna sort of do a holistic whole genome uh, analysis uh, of the distribution of where these mutations are within the genomes and whether or not that distribution is shifted by random expectations. So this is you know, very similar to uh, the logic used in Marion Delbrook, where we're, we have an expected uh, distribution or we have multiple different distributions and we're comparing our observation to that expected. Um, and so what is being plotted here is, so the y-axis is genes with a certain number of mutations, I should say, and this is uh, the number of mutations that are occurring. Okay, so that's a little confusing. Let me just read this, this plot. Before we go into the expected, let's just talk about the observed. And so what this plot is saying is that um, there are many genes that uh, have no mutations in them at all. Okay, that makes sense. They haven't evolved yet. There are some genes that have just one mutation, and there's some genes that have multiple mutations, and so forth. And there's this long tail of genes that have lots of mutations. What we're comparing here is expected versus observed. So observed is just directly from the sequence data. Uh, the expected is basically what you can think of is, you know, we observed, you know, thousands of mutations. And we have all of these different genomes. And if we were just to sort of randomly shower down these mutations in these different genomes, how many times do we think that two mutations would randomly land in a single gene? How many times there would be a gene that didn't get any of these random mutations at all? Um, how many times do we expect that there would be three mutations in a gene? So this just establishes what we would expect by random chance. And so what we find here is that you know, we get this, this distribution 
where there's very few that have two and very few that have three repeated mutations in the exact same gene. But when we look at, look at the observed data, we actually find that there's lots and lots of genes that actually have um, uh, many mutations uh, in them. And so this is both uh, a single copy of the gene that has multiple mutations, or um, that gene is in different bacterial isolates and individually got, got mutations or independently got mutations in that gene. And so what this is showing is that, you know, there are certainly ones that violate, really, really violate our, our random expectations. And so these are our candidates for genes um, that are likely experiencing natural selection. So the overall pattern is that it does appear that there's parallel evolution in these genomes and that that's a sign of natural selection. Okay. So the next step that we want to do to prove that some of these genes are evolving by natural selection is to run a DNDS analysis. So this is something that we've already learned about. And so if we do a DNDS analysis on all of the genes that have mutations in the genome, um, we actually find that that analysis yields a DNDS ratio no greater than one. So this is the error associated with the analysis and it overlaps with this one. And so there, there's definitely um, no signs of natural selection. But basically what we're doing is we're muddling um, our ability to detect natural selection because we're probably incorporating genes that are not experiencing selection, genes that might be experiencing purifying selection with genes that might be experiencing positive selection. And you know, adaptation is driven by positive selection. We really wanna hone in on the set of genes that uh, we expect and we hypothesize are experiencing positive selection and then redo the analysis on just those genes. And so um, what they're showing us here is when we look at genes uh, mutated once, um, you know, you actually do get a, a sign of maybe purifying selection. When a gene is mutated twice, um, you end up getting the sign of a little bit of positive selection, although it's not significantly uh, different than the, the neutral expe expectation of one. Um, and then if you look at genes that have mutated uh, greater than or equal to three times, then you get this huge bar, uh, this huge sign that of positive selection. So a DNDS ratio of 16 is, is enormous. Um, and so the genes, when we hone our view to just the genes that show parallel evolution, those genes also show a second sign of positive selection, an elevated DNDS ratio. Okay, so now let's ask ourselves, how are these bacteria adapting to humans? We have signatures of adaptation, uh, what, what types of genes are mutating and how might that relate to the way that they're exploiting us? Um, and should we be concerned about their evolution? And so this is a lot to read uh, and certainly do, you do not have to memorize all of this information, um, but you know, get the general picture of what's going on here. Um, and so we have different subjects. So remember A through N and we have the number of times that uh, type of gene, so this is, I'm sorry, on these are different genes here listed. So each row, so subjects are columns, genes are rows. Within a cell, so within a little square, uh, the, the coloration indicates how many mutations were observed 
in the strains that infected a given patient and um, just looking at a, a given gene. So for instance, this patient here had no mutations in this gene, whereas this patient here had tons and tons of mutant bacteria that had um, mutations in, in that gene. Um, and so that's how you read this figure. What this is just adding up the, the number of mutations observed in, in each of these rows. This just gives us um, you know, how much parallel evolution is happening in each one of these genes. Uh, the function here is that uh, different genes are clustered together by their role in, in what they do in the cell. And so there's a bunch that are about uh, oxygen uh, gene regulation. Um, there's a bunch that are unknown. Uh, so uh, even we understand bacteria very well, but there's many genes that we don't understand what they do. Um, there's some for antibiotic resistance. That makes sense. These patients are being treated with antibiotics. Outer membrane synthesis. Um, this is how the bacteria are interacting with the lung environment uh, and interacting with antibiotics and with um, phages that might be in the lung. And so that makes sense that that is under selection. And then this is uh, for secretion, which also you know, influences the interaction with the hosts. Um, so the, here are the different functions and we can read the table to see sort of which ones are experiencing the most substitutions. Um, you know, this one here has the, the biggest sign of parallel evolution, um, this histidine kinase. And we know that it's important for gene regulation in response to different levels, varying levels of oxygen. And so certainly the lung environment has these oxygen gradients where uh, there's lots of oxygen deep in the lung and there's little oxygen at the tips of the lung. And so um, augmenting your gene regulation to facilitate these different oxygen environments seems to be applying a lot of pressure um, to optimize that gene regulation. And so we see lots of mutations uh, that have the signature of natural selection in these uh, regulatory genes related to oxygen. That makes sense. Um, of course, there are a bunch of genes that are hit that are known to have mutations in them that cause antibiotic resistance. And so um, we're gonna take a closer look at gyre gene. So this is often a target of antibiotics. If the antibiotic interferes with this protein, then it stops DNA replication. And so now, and this is, this is sort of the level of evidence that, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 study hasn't gotten to yet, uh, that Tammy was able to uh, with these bacteria, is to actually get these genotypes and test their phenotype in a controlled way in the lab to establish what benefit these mutations are actually giving to that bacteria or for SARS-CoV-2 to that virus. And so um, what I'm showing you here so is a table that summarizes mutations in two different locations, um, uh, in this amino acid 83 and this amino acid 87. Uh, and this is in, um, uh, in the BDAG02189. That's just the name for this uh, gyre homolog, okay? And um, it is known uh, that mutations in gyre affect resistance to Cipro. And so they actually find that in both of these locations, there are different mutations that occur. Um, and so these sort of categories of strains. 
they have no mutations in this first position, whereas the second two uh, colors uh, have a mutation. So one has a T in the middle of the codon that changes um, from a threonine to a methionine amino acid. One has an A in the middle that changes to a lysine. Um, and then these colorations are strains that have a mutation, this first A, which changes the amino acid to ASN. Um, and now the, the strains that are labeled with purple um, in this phylogeny down here uh, indicate strains that have actually a double mutation, TT, um, that really alters the amino acid um, to phenylalanine. And so these are the ancestral states of the codon and the amino acid. And then these are the derived states of the codon and the amino acid. The circles just indicate that there's no change uh, in that position. So three different nucleotides, that's why there's three circles, equal one uh, amino acid, that's why there's just one circle here. Okay, so this is a key to help us understand what's going on down here. Uh, and what they're showing is this is, the, there's a lot of strains that they've sequenced, right? They are showing the evolutionary relationship between all of these different strains. So this is just the phylogeny in that, that circle plot just condensed down um, into this x-axis. And on the y-axis, what we have is the MIC to Cipro. Um, and so all of the gray are ones that do not have mutations in this uh, gyre homolog. Um, but the ones that do have the coloration have these distinct mutations in them. Um, and so we can actually see that the same mutation evolved many different times for this yellow, um, this guy here. That evolved uh, independently here in this cluster and the ancestor to that cluster, the ancestor to that cluster, the ancestor to that cluster, and so on. Um, and what we find is that uh, it confers, all of these um, mutations actually confer increased MIC. So it, it, they all confer resistance um, to Cipro. Uh, and so that is you know, a really strong pattern where every single one of these colored bars is higher um, than every single one of these gray bars. I guess this one is kind of the outlier, but that's just due to statistical error probably in the measurement. And uh, there's a really strong pattern that if you have a mutation in this gene, you become more resistant. Another mutation that happens a lot that they're able to look at the phenotype for um, is mutations in uh, this, this, these proteins that make LPS. So actually, let's, let's talk about what L, LPS and OE antigens are, and then we'll go back to the actual data from the paper. Um, and so the outer membrane of bact uh, bacteria often have these things called LPS that are hanging off the outer membrane. And they influence how the bacteria interacts with its environment and what kind of uh, molecules can cross the outer membrane and, and even sensitivity to different pathogens and stuff like that. Uh, so they have, a lot, they have a big role. Uh, and what it is is that you have this LPS, uh, and this is the core of the LPS, and then you have these O antigens that hang off. So that's the, the things that are waving out into the environment. Um, and what... Um, what Tammy saw is that um, there were a lot of there was a lot of parallel evolution in this gene BDAG, which is known to um, help produce um, the O antigen 
on the LPS core. And so what she found is that the ancestral version of this gene actually had a stop code on it. And what that meant is that it didn't produce that long O antigen chain. Um, and what, the, um, what she found is that during the evolution of this pathogen, uh, it actually fixed that gene, uh, so it converted a stop codon into uh, glucine or glycine. Um, and so then what happened is that now this protein is no longer truncated, and, and so it works, and it produces these long O antigen repeats on, uh, from the LPS core. So you can imagine that the ancestor kind of had a buzzed uh, haircut, so it didn't have these O antigens. But then during the course of the evolution of this pathogen, it had regained the O antigens. And so um, this is just the, the molecular assay that shows you if it has long O antigens or if it doesn't have O antigens. And you can see that there's a perfect uh, lining up of different uh, bacteria that either had, the, had these mutations and had these long O antigens or never got the mutation and did not have the O antigen. So there's a perfect mapping of genotype to phenotype here. Um, and so it suggests that you know, this is some, some way, given that it has evolved repeatedly, that is beneficial for these bacteria. And so the question is, well, why, why, is this, um, why are these O antigens beneficial? Well, it turns out that um, these uh, offer a first round of defense from uh, antibiotics from coming from the environment into the cell. And so they provide some level of resistance to antibiotics. And so that's likely what's going on here. And so then that leads to the question of, you know, protection from antibiotics is, is generally very good. So it leads to the question of, well, why did the ancestor to all of these bacteria not already have that O antigen? Why did it, in its evolutionary past, why did it get rid of the O antigen? It had the gene there, but it put a stop code on in that gene. Um, and then later, as the epidemic was underway, it actually regained that gene. It, it removed that stop code on. So that's pretty interesting. That's, that's an indication of fluctuating selection. So what's going on there? And so answering this question, uh, protection seems generally good, then why would the ancestor not have O antigens? I predict, now this is just a prediction, but I think it's probably due to bacterial phages. So we know that this O antigen is the target of some phages. You know, these are on lots of bacteria, and so it's a way for phage to find them and then mount an infection. And so bacteria often lose these O antigens to avoid getting infected by phages. So the O antigens are generally good for dealing with antibiotics, but they're bad and they make you susceptible to phages. And so I think what Tammy has observed is this sort of tension between be, that we learned about um, with efflux pumps and with Paul Turner's work that um, sometimes traits that confer resistance to antibiotics could also confer sensitivity to phages. And that just by examining sort of the natural patterns of gaining and losing the O antigens, it suggests that there is this sort of pleiotropic interaction um, between the two and that, you know, maybe even collateral sensitivity is, is evolving so that if you evolve resistance to the antibiotics with the O antigen, then you become sensitive to phage and vice versa. 
So I would actually say that, you know, using this natural, this data um, from Tammy's work, it actually helps us sort of pinpoint uh, a, a natural synergism uh, between different treatment protocols. And I wonder if CF patients, if they're treated with phages that target O antigens, if you would get that synergy, just like um, uh, Paul Turner had seen with efflux pumps, and you'd get a sort of more effective treatment at wiping out the bacteria. Okay, so that's, that's sort of a, a, a side uh, thing, and just to relate back to um, our previous lectures on the synergistic interactions between different therapies and phage and antibiotics in particular. Okay, so we're running late again, of course, as always, this time only by five minutes, so that's good. And I just want to sort of step back and summarize what's going on here. Uh, so I love this paper. Um, it's a really detailed description of an of a epidemic and the progress of the disease through a population. Um, what we can see from this is that the strain uh, spreads between patients relatively rapidly. Once a strain takes hold within a patient, then um, it seems that it maybe even blocks further strains from, um, from infecting the lungs. And so the idea there is that the strain is adapting to the lung environment and is a fierce competitor. And so new strains that are not adapted to that particular lung environment likely can't invade. This data doesn't prove that, but it suggests that. Um, there is significant evolution that occurs within patients, and there's multiple lines of evidence that show that these mutations, some of them are actually adaptive and are helping the disease uh, maintain in the lungs and maintain infection by uh, allowing it to adapt to environments in the lung, but also by allowing it to avoid um, the therapies that we're throwing at the disease. Uh, as always, thank you guys for tuning in. And um, yeah, I'll see you on Thursday. So thank you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.